It is Adrian Lawrence and welcome into TYT's The Conversation. And now I bring you someone who is looking to bring much needed leadership to California's 38th district, which is right on that outskirts, excuse me, of LA County, Jonathan Amandi. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Hey, Adrian, thank you for having me. Yes, so you are running to represent Santa Clarita Valley, Simi Valley, and the communities in Northern LA County. So, you know, I know this is about the third largest city area in LA County, and I'm wondering what really inspired you to run? Yeah, um, well, you know, for me, what it came down to at the end of the day is I, I really feel like I can make a difference for people, I can make a difference in their lives. And I would say that about a week before I announced my campaign, I went up to Merced where my parents live and it was my mom's birthday and we started having a conversation. You always know with your parents when they want to talk about something, but they're like dancing around the issue. And finally we got to it and I said, mom, you know, what's going on? And she begged me actually not to run for office. She said that, you know, it's it's so tough. There's people who will will hurt you. There's disingenuous people. It's I mean, politics is nasty right now. We all know it. We all see it. And yet, I told her that I don't know how I would be able to look myself in the mirror, knowing that I could make a difference for people, and not run. And that is a powerful thing because a lot of people, especially over this last year, kind of they're realizing what they need to do to be fulfilled in their lives, you know, coming through this pandemic. And I know that there have been significant changes going on. And currently, the incumbent of the 38th district is a Republican, also a nonprofit executive. And so I'm wondering, how can you better serve that 38th district than the current incumbent? Yeah, well, you know, I think that. It's a great question, and I would say, as a representative, you have one job, right? Especially in the California State Legislature, your job is to go to Sacramento and represent us, to be our voice in that legislative body. And unfortunately, the the current our current representative, she she dodges a lot of votes and things that should be softballs. Um, you know, for Pride Month, there was a resolution in the Assembly to to recognize Pride Month. And she abstained from voting on it. That's your one job. And you can't even stand up to tell people in your community, friends, family members, neighbors, that you see them and you respect them and you love them enough to recognize Pride Month. And I just think that that's unconscionable, frankly. And it sounds like it's something very unfortunate because you would want to think that individuals, regardless of political affiliation, can recognize the humanity in others. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of the humanity of those around you, I know that you are looking at various issues that are very important to you. So I'd love for you to speak upon a few of those. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, the three main tenants of my platform are addressing the the housing crisis, the housing affordability crisis that we have here in California, tackling the impacts of climate change that, you know, for those of us in LA County, are very real every day. And the third one is something that's really personal for me, which is addressing the state of senior care here in California. My mother-in-law has ALS, and and I've just seen firsthand the the conditions which many of our seniors are. You know, parents and grandparents are are living in 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 this state, and it and it's unfortunate because all of our taxpayer dollars are are going to pay for programs and services that are designed to allow seniors to age with dignity in their own homes, and yet right now they're just so inaccessible. And there's so much more 
that, that we can be doing, that we should be doing, that, that we have to be doing, not just to support our seniors, but also the, the people who have dedicated their lives to providing good care for seniors in our communities. And, and you know, I know it's something I can do if I'm given the chance and the opportunity. Yes, and I know definitely housing is very important to people as well as care. And these are conversations that are being had, especially at a national level, considering the housing crisis that's going on. And I know that that is something that is on your platform and important to you. So can you tell us a little bit about why that's important to your prospective constituents? Oh, Of course, I mean, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the community of Santa Clarita specifically. You know, this is one of those places, even though you mentioned it, it's the third largest city in LA County. It still has that, that small town feel to it. And the reason it has that is because generations of families were able to live here. People who moved here to raise a family, <clears throat> they raised their kids here because we have great schools. And then their kids chose to stay here and, and raise families here. Those same opportunities are, are not available to the next generations of families. And that's one of the things that's gonna threaten our quality of life here. You know, We have working class families who are living two, three families to, to a home, to an apartment. I live in, in a two bedroom apartment here that's $3,000 a month, $3,000. I mean, my wife and I, we could afford a mortgage if we could save up the down payment. And yet the homes that we're seeing here, homes that used to be $300,000, are now going for $700,000, $800,000, which are completely unattainable for people like us. And we already have young people who are graduating from college with student loan debt that they're burdened by. And now they're faced with the reality that they're not going to be able to generate wealth in the traditional way of, of home ownership. And instead, all of that money every month is just gonna be burning out of their bank accounts as they're, they're paying rent. And so we are seeing young people who are, who are leaving this state because they can't afford to live here. People who want to be a part of this great state, who want to work here, who want to create jobs and, and companies here that, that just frankly aren't able to. And that's a completely unfortunate thing. And as a lifelong Californian, I know that I can definitely speak to the fact that being able to afford housing is a critical and vital issue. So I'm grateful to hear you do have a plan for that. And I'd love to talk a little bit about your background. I know that you are the former Santa Clarita City Council candidate, as well as a former senior district representative for Representative Katie Hill. And so I'm wondering how had your time working in politics really informed your vision? Yeah, well, you know, I have to say this is something that's really new to me. I never really imagined that I would be running for for public office. I, um, as you know, my degree is in aeronautical engineering from from UCLA, and I, I always thought that that's what I would do—that I would design airplanes. But I've been lucky enough to work in a, a number of different careers, including the entertainment industry, and I'm currently working in in healthcare now. But Trump changed everything for me. You know, I'm somebody who was always interested in politics. My favorite show is The West Wing, and I'd watch you know the Daily Show religiously. But with the election of Donald Trump, I recognized that we could no longer sit on the sidelines. That we had to be involved. We we had to make our voices heard and and stand up for our values. And and that's what I'm doing now. That's that's what I've done while I was trying to work on that 2018 congressional campaign and and serving this community as a, as a district representative. And you know what it's really taught me is that this community has, has so much to offer. And really, you just have to go out and listen to people and be honest and upfront and, and have respectful conversations with them. 
Yes, that definitely sounds like it is a key to being a great leader, which is exactly what our nation needs in very respects at the state, local, as well as federal level. And so when it comes to what you would like to see most for Santa Clarita and the area in terms of the 38th district, what would be your main goal? Yeah, well, you know, aside from the the platform, the three things that we already talked about, the the very first thing that I would do if I were elected to office, when I'm elected to office, is that I would create um, community advisory councils. The the thing that I've learned most is that pretty much on any one of these issues that I'm advocating for, there are people who have spent 30 years, their, their whole lives working and advocating on these issues. I want them to be a part of the conversation. I want them to be a part of the solution. And the only way that we're able to do that is to invite them in and be able to advise on legislation and the potential challenges that we see right now and what the solutions to those things might look like. Yes, it sounds like you want to give people a voice. And one thing I definitely like to commend you on is stepping up. The fact that you know a lot of people saw what happened during these four years of the Trump administration, in addition to January 6th, but few people actually stepped up to run for office. And given your background in terms of what aeronautical engineering and more of that technical arena, just kind of as a side note, what would you say has been the most challenging or eye-opening thing about entering this race for politics? You know, um, when I got into it, there was a friend of mine who ran in the 2020 cycle who told me, Jonathan, you're gonna have good days, you're gonna have bad days. And at the end of the day, (laughs) that's definitely been true. The best days are the days when I get to engage with voters and talk with them on the phone or in people's you know, living rooms and, and backyards. And I'm blessed to say that we're having more good days than bad days, and and we're still having fun. That is a very good thing, and it sounds like it will be a lot of fun, hopefully moving forward, because it sounds like you have a great vision for the 38th district, and I'm extremely excited about that. And so before we wrap up here, is there any final notes that you'd like to share with our viewers? Yeah, I would just like to say if 2018 taught us anything when we took back the house, it's that the only way we're able to make real substantive change is when people stand up and they make their voices heard and they get involved. I can't do this on my own. I want to be that voice, the voice for the voiceless. And yet, you know, I I can't do it on my own. I need people to get involved, to participate. And so I'd ask if, if they've liked what they've heard today, if, if they want to get involved, if they want to learn more, that they'd go to my website, which is amadiforassembly.com, A-H-M-A-D-I. Excellent, thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us. Thank you for stepping up and also for challenging the Republican incumbent. And we definitely wanna put all of the wind in your sails and moving forward and making the necessary change to ensure California stays blue because we definitely need change. So thank you again for joining us. And please remind people of your website where they can find more information and support you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Adrian. The website is www.amadiforassembly.com, A-H-M-A-D-I. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Hello, it's Adrian, and I am back at it. And now I'm joined by the president and founder of GemTrainers.com, a social justice consultancy firm that partners with nonprofits. Welcome in, Glenn Martin. Hey, Adrian, how are you? Glad to be here. 
Thank you for joining us. So as you wrote in the New York Daily News earlier this month, Rikers Island is a haunting monument to America's dedication to the criminalization of poor people, most of whom are black or brown. Now that is a very damning condemnation of one of the world's largest correctional and mental health facilities. So why do you say that? Yeah, thanks for the question, especially in such a resource rich, progressive city like New York. What a lot of people don't know is that you know, with all of the ills of Rikers that people might be familiar with, that it was purchased from Richard Riker, who used to be the court, the head of the courts in New York. And at night, his other job would be to be part of the kidnapping club, which was a group of white men that would go out into New York City and kidnap black men, bring them in front of his court the next day, and send them back to the slave holding South. And so that's the insidious history of this piece of land. And I would argue that everything that stemmed from it is just as insidious. I don't think you need to argue it. I definitely would say that sounds like facts. And it's interesting because I never knew that. And I went to City University of New York, CUNY for those, that John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And we did not learn that about Rikers Island at all. But it definitely sounds like it's still in the business of going out there and getting black and brown people and throwing them in the facility for economic and financial kind of, you know, supplementation, shall we say. Would you agree with that? Uh, I sure would. Uh, as someone who spent time at Rikers when I was 16 for shoplifting, I was sent there with $1,500 bail. I would argue that what we see now on Rikers is uh, nowhere near better than when I was there 30 years ago. But also, we're spending $400,000 per bed per year on this human grist mill in our backyard, this torture island uh, here, right next to the airport. Couple hundred feet from LaGuardia Airport, where so many Americans fly in and out of. Most people don't realize that there's this small city, one bridge, one way on, one way off, that is essentially where we send 80% of people charged with crimes, not even convicted of a crime. Yikes, that definitely sounds like there is a lot going on in terms of pretty much the people coming in and out of Rikers. And you had mentioned that you had gone to Rikers when you were young for shoplifting. What was your experience like? Um, you know, it was difficult to understand how a city like New York could have a place like Rikers in store for a 16 year old who is charged with such a minor crime. It is a place where due process goes out the window. Correction officers make it clear to anyone who ends up there that it's their island and that they're not very interested in the well being of anyone who's spending time there. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the majority of people who are there are there with low amounts of bail. Most of the crimes are not serious crimes. When I was there, there were 22,000 people there on an island that's only ever been built for 14,000 at max. So if there's any good news is that we've gotten the population down. But the thing we've not changed is the nature of the culture of Rikers, the abusive nature of Rikers, and the actual plant, the facilities. When you build a jail next to an airport, you build it differently than you would build a jail that's meant for safety. The buildings are low, the buildings are linear to avoid the airplanes taking off and landing just next door. And so arguably from the moment we built Rikers Island, we built it in a way that's not safe for the correction officers or for the detainees. 
Well, it definitely sounds like a potential Eighth Amendment violation. But I'm sure economics are what prevail in this situation. I'd like to touch upon something you said earlier about essentially building the facility for a smaller number of people than which it is housed. And I know we're seeing right now in the media photos that are emerging showing instances of horrific overcrowding on the island. And up to, I believe, 26 inmates in a cell meant for a single person. What is going on here? Yeah, you know, that that for me harkens back to the 90s during the crack epidemic here in New York, where people were in similar conditions. The fact is that, you know, I ran a campaign a few years ago to convince the mayor of New York to close Rikers. We spent about $5 million chasing him all over the country to get this allegedly progressive mayor de Blasio to say yes to closing Rikers. When he finally did, he actually punted the ball and said that it would happen in 10 years. Now, there have been some measures put in place by the city council primarily and some others to move the ball forward. But he literally set that decade long place mark so that he wouldn't ultimately be the one responsible for shutting it down. And again, in a city with so much brilliance, so much resources, a city where we built the Empire State Building in less than a year, I find it hard to believe you can't shut down Rikers in a decade. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and also so much wealth there. It's absolutely incredibly wild. And hey, that punt by de Blasio saying in a decade we'll do it. You know what? That is NFL worthy in terms of punts because it's just insane. And I know, in addition to overcrowding, that there's really been a spike in deaths on the island this year. I think the death toll with inmates is up to at least 14, many of them suicides. And so I'd love to know what do you believe must be done to make it a humane institution when it comes to avoiding the loss, unnecessary loss of life. Yeah, I think we need more transparency. I think what it needs is light, light and more light to be quite honest. I think more and more New Yorkers seeing what happens at Rikers Island is hugely important. I think the administration is constantly keeping things in the shadow, if you will, in terms of what happens. And for every every death that we see in the news, there are probably tens of people being abused, beat up, broken limbs and so on. I talk to the medical staff at Rikers quite often, obviously off the record because they're scared for their jobs. And what I hear from them over and over is they really have no authority when it comes to helping people who are sick, people who are infirm, people who are going through drug withdrawals in the cells and so on. They are at the whim of the correction officers just as much as the people who are serving time. And so though they have an oath obviously to do right by people in terms of health, and protecting human life, they find that the correction officers are usually the barriers to getting there. And surprisingly, you know, Rikers Island, the correction officer population is hugely people of color, to be quite honest, over the last few decades. And it's so really jarring to see a place where there's not that much distance, if you will, between the people who are serving time, the people who are guarding them. And yes, yet there's this huge distance in terms of how much we value people's lives once they end up on the other side of that bridge. That's a very powerful observation you made. And I'd love to stick on the conversation of correctional officers, because I know in August, the daily average for correctional officers calling out with no explanation whatsoever was about 1400. And that inmates are reportedly running amok in terms of that they're controlling entire units there. And so if you were to talk to actually the powers that be, and or even if that's just the people of New York City, what would you tell them that we're essentially missing here? You know, my older brother grew up in poverty just like me, but ended up being a federal correction officer. And in some ways, 
I try to do my best to empathize with all the stakeholders in a situation like this. But as I often say to my brother, you know, what would you want existing in your name? What are your values? And does what you see day to day at your job line up with your values? And if not, then why would you continue to do that job? And he is someone who left the job as a result of that. And so I would say to the correction officers who usually return home to places across New York City, just like the people who are serving time there, what do you want to exist in your name? What's the story you want told to your grandchildren about what you did in this moment? Because arguably, this is a moment that people will look back on and say, what was wrong with those people? How could they allow that to exist? And similarly, for elected officials, I would do the same thing we did during the campaign to close Rikers, which is to urge them to show courage, and to recognize that their legacy is gonna be written over decades, not day to day, week to week. And so essentially do the right thing, step up, show courage, and treat people the way you'd want your family treated if they ended up at Rikers. I remember doing a tour of Rikers with a couple of celebrities and the Kennedy family and a bunch of other folks a few years ago. And they showed us everything that's great about Rikers, if you will. And when we got to the end of the tour, one of the people I was with asked the commissioner who had taken us on the tour, if his wife were locked up, would he want her to be at Rikers? And he said, absolutely not. And this was the commissioner. Yeah, and that speaks volumes because I think that a lot of us realize that the things we're allowing other people to endure, we would not want to endure ourselves or allow our family members or loved ones to endure. And so it's a question of our own humanity. And as you've pointed out, is that the legacy we want to leave? And, you know, something that really hits me. Uh, as a California native, even though I'm sure there are very dissimilar circumstances for various reasons. But it makes me think of Alcatraz and how the city finally shut it down or the state finally shut it down at a point in time. But it makes me wonder, what do you think would be necessary to shut Rikers down? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I went and visited Alcatraz just before I launched the campaign to shut down Rikers, just so I could believe that it could actually happen. And I actually believe, unfortunately, that what we probably need is an interest in Rikers, the actual facility to plant that is greater than the city's interest in punishing people. Wow, well, I don't know how that could happen or when that could happen, but I think we might need racism, you know, classism, ethnocentrism, all of that to essentially dispel itself and just to leave our society before that could ever happen. But it's something that I definitely hope and can look forward to. So Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. And can you thank please you. tell the viewers where to find more information about your organization? Sure, folks can visit gemtrainers.com or check me out on Twitter at Glenn E. Martin. Awesome, thank you so much, Glenn, for your insight. And thank you so much for all of your work and your courage to make change because I can definitely tell you it is very much appreciated because we need it out there, most certainly. Thank you so much, thanks for the opportunity.